I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part one in the series, Jesus is Lord, Caesar is Not. How should Christians understand and engage politics and government? Is there a uniquely Christian way to vote? How do Christians practice justice when the kingdom of the world practices injustice? How do you love your enemy when your enemy is a governor or senator or president? To understand and answer these questions and to survive another election season, we will go to the scriptures and to the teachings of Jesus to learn and relearn to whom we pledge allegiance. Thessalonica was nestled within the larger kingdom of Macedonia, which was home of Alexander the Great. Constantly targeted by Roman military might, Macedonia was eventually invaded, overthrown, and occupied by the Roman Empire. Now, in the wake of this new Roman era, Thessalonica was chosen as the capital city of the newly Roman Macedonian province. For all its special treatment, there developed in Thessalonica a decidedly pro-Roman disposition. And the capital was eventually awarded the status of a free city, meaning Thessalonica was now tax-exempt, independently governed, minting its own money, and was free from Roman occupation. All this contingent on maintaining allegiance to the Roman Empire. Or put it another way, the people of Thessalonica enjoyed a comfortable independence from Rome, micromanaging their way of life anyway, just as long as they remembered who was really in charge. And Thessalonica remembered well. In fact, archaeologists have uncovered evidence of an imperial cult in Thessalonica, people who worshipped the emperor. Caesar Augustus' image had even replaced the image of Zeus on Thessalonian coins. And statues of Caesar Augustus depicted as a god, as divine, were stationed throughout the city, making the looming presence of the emperor known everywhere. This was the gospel, or the good news, of the reign of Caesar. So though Thessalonica was officially free, it was yet another city caught in the emperor's social network involving patronage and demanding homage and loyalty to Caesar, loyalty that the city's officials would be expected to enforce in order to maintain the peace and keep the city well within the good graces of the emperor. To do so, the city's leaders instituted oaths like this one. I swear, this is me reading a quote, by the way, I'm not actually saying any of this. God, I don't mean any of it. I swear that I will support Caesar Augustus, his children and descendants throughout my life in word, deed, and thought that in whatsoever concerns them, I will spare neither body nor soul nor life nor children, that whenever I see or hear of anything being said, planned, or done against them, I will report it, and whomsoever they regard as enemies, I will attack and pursue with arms and the sword by land and by sea, and it goes on and on. Today... Those who immigrate to the United States are made to, put, made to pledge a similar oath. This is an, ex, uh, an excerpt from that oath. Again, just me reading a quote. I hereby declare on oath that I absolutely and entirely renounce and abjure all allegiance and fidelity to any foreign prince, potentate, state, sovereignty that I will support and defend the constitutional laws of the United States of America against all enemies, foreign and domestic, that I will bear arms on behalf of the United States when required by the law, or in children's classrooms across the country in the morning, I pledge allegiance to the flag. So, 
The city of Thessalonica was pagan. It was pluralistic, meaning a culture of many gods. It was hedonistic, meaning if it feels good, you should do it. What's right for you is right for you. And it was steeped in nationalistic idolatry, which sounds to me exactly like the world we know thousands of miles away and two millennia later. Into this first century world of many gods and Caesar worship steps a Jewish rabbi turned missionary for Jesus. His name was Paul, along with his co-worker Silas and his young protege, Timothy. And they begin to preach a dangerously subversive message. So let's read part of that story in Acts 17, beginning with verse 1. When Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I'm proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. But other Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials, shouting, listen to this, these men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. And Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Paul and his friends arrive in the city, shamelessly proclaiming a different gospel. We have a different announcement of a different king. There is a king, but it isn't Caesar. It's actually a peasant rabbi called Jesus of Nazareth who was executed as an enemy of the state. Jesus is Lord. Caesar is not. And people lost their minds. Caesar demands all allegiance and a certain way of life, but Jesus makes a competing demand for the same thing. And Paul is going around openly encouraging people to choose Jesus, not Caesar. Now, naturally, Paul and his friends attract attention. They get into trouble. Consequently, Paul is banned from Thessalonica as an enemy of the state. How did Paul come to believe such a thing? We know from history that a first century peasant rabbi called Jesus of Nazareth was, like I said, executed by the Roman Empire for criminal sedition. He was an enemy of the state. We know from history that Jesus' earliest followers were similarly understood as liabilities, dangers to the political machine, possible insurrectionists. We know from history that for this very reason, they were persecuted, arrested, and executed by soldiers, officers, and politicians, which is weird, really weird, given the fact that we also know from history that both Jesus and his earliest followers uniformly taught and practiced the ways of peace and nonviolence and enemy love. Jesus was assumed to arrange a political revolt, but he did not. Jesus' disciples were accused of inciting protests and riots, of planning to overthrow the government, 
And not only did they not do either thing, they actively taught and promoted ways of life that made either thing an impossibility. But we also know from history that the political charges against Jesus and his earliest disciples weren't entirely without cause. The way of Jesus did call for a revolution, but it wasn't the kind of revolution anyone suspected. Take Thessalonica, for example. By the time we get to the New Testament, the letter that we now call Thessalonians, Paul, the man responsible for planting a church in Thessalonica, writing a letter to that church, he's already been kicked out of the city on suspicion of political subversion. Paul had already led an uprising in Thessalonica, but it was somehow quiet and peaceful and more revolutionary than any riot or violent revolt. How? Okay, here comes the deep water. In 2020, our country, and really much of the world, resumed an ongoing and controversial public discourse about race and injustice, and many churches, including ours, participated in that conversation. And many churches, I know, including ours, were sometimes accused of, and I quote, becoming political. What does that mean? Now, of course, I can't speak for everyone who has ever lobbied the accusation, but in my personal experience, the inference is often that there are areas of our lives that we would rather Jesus not touch. All of us know this. We like Jesus' teachings about love and peace, for example, but many of us don't want him to tell us how to spend our money, for example. But he does tell us how to spend our money. Similarly, the way of Jesus is inherently political, but not, I would argue, in the way so many people think. Theology is the study of God, and everything is theological. This is not hyperbole. The clothes you're wearing, the air in this room, the grass outside, your schedule, your breakfast, Martin Short, everything is theological. In my years of talking about the church and the state, I've gathered over time that what many mean by the accusation, this is getting too political, is that the person or church or artist being accused is articulating a political position or inference that is outside of the accuser's personal party or preference. It's not that things are getting political, it's that they're getting political on the wrong side to the accuser. This is why I believe personally that when we've done a halfway decent job aligning ourselves with the teachings of Jesus, I will get angry emails from people on both sides of the aisle at about the same basic thing, and it does happen. But let me use Garth Brooks as an example, because any opportunity I have to talk about Garth Brooks, I will take. In February, Garth Brooks, perhaps country music's all-time finest artist, posted a photo of himself in a football jersey intended to tribute an athlete from the city in which he was performing. Said athlete's name was Sanders, Barry Sanders. I had to ask somebody about this. Thing is, Sanders is also the name, or last name rather, of a one Bernie Sanders. So Garth's following lost their minds. Up and down the post, the overwhelming objection was, stop being political. One of our elders left a note on this teaching pointing out that Barry Sanders is a well-known and beloved athlete in Detroit. This was a blatant tribute to the football player, and it somehow outraged Garth's fan base. The elder wisely noted, people see what they want to see. When you scratch at the idol, people freak out. In the same way, but on the other side of the aisle, 
A scattered few applauded Garth. Yes, they cried. Vote for Bernie. All this from a football jersey. Now, my guess is that if Garth had posted a selfie in a MAGA hat, the reaction would have still happened, just flipped the other way around. The same crowd, furious with Garth for, for being political, would have cheered him on for that very reason and vice versa. And the same thing happens to Christians and pastors and theologians and churches. But if you've been at Van City for a while now, let's say at least for the three plus years that it's taken us to study the Gospel of Matthew, not done yet, by the way, then you've probably gathered it that if you read Jesus long enough, he will have something to say about everything in your life. About the obvious stuff associated with Jesus, you know, love and forgiveness and mercy, but also about the way you spend money and express your sexuality, about the things that you eat and the way that you treat the environment, about your lifestyle, and yes, about our relationship to government and politics. But I don't blame the world for squirming and cringing when the church gets quote-unquote political because for a few centuries, we have done a very, very bad job at it because those who do believe Jesus' teachings are inherently political often assume that they adhere to a party or a side or even to a country or a particular system of government. What's often called American evangelicalism, for example, is not only dissimilar to the teaching of Jesus and the writings of the New Testament and the practices of the early church, I would argue that it's often antithetical to them, diametrically opposed to them. So how did we get here? And what should we do? That is what the next few weeks are about. Now, I don't have to tell you guys that as we near November, the socio-political landscape of America is a dark and difficult terrain. I've heard many noteworthy figures much older than I am reflect on the way that our country feels different than it ever has in their lifetimes. Maybe so. I don't know. To be the people of Jesus in our time, in our place, to actually embody and accomplish the thing that we go on and on and on about at Van City, following the way of Jesus together, this is a conversation that we need to have. I've spent a lot of time talking about Jesus and government over the years. It's been a hobby horse of mine long before I planted a church, and I've gathered over the years that for many this is a very difficult conversation. There are all sorts of reasons why, the way we've been raised, our culture, the stories that we've come to believe over time, the things that we take for granted. So I can only ask, with respect and with humility, to step into this conversation with an open mind. If you feel your hackles rise, take a deep breath, be patient, and keep listening. So let me pray for us before we start the hard work. Holy Spirit, prepare our hearts. Make us humble. Jesus, teacher and master, open our eyes to see the truth. Open our ears to hear you well. Prepare us to lay down anything that we've come to believe that is contrary to your truth and your way even if it is very precious to us, if it does not submit wholly to your teachings and to the authority of the scriptures. You are Lord, we are not. Amen. So, now, do me a favor and turn, to your, uh, turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, 
Before we do more work, let me give you kind of a map for the evening. I don't have to tell you this is a pretty complicated topic, so tonight I want to establish a basic paradigm for church and government laid out in the New Testament, and then we'll build on that as the conversation moves forward over the unfolding weeks. Here's a bit of recommended reading to supplement the series. We'll have this on the website if you want to look it up later. For a reader-friendly, down-to-earth, short and sweet Uh, The Myth of a Christian Nation by Gregory A. Boyd. It's short, comprehensive, reader-friendly, possibly the best book on the topic. Jesus for President by Shane Claiborne's fun is a a kind of a visual little book, but very helpful. It's very insightful. If you want something more thorough, a couple of academic volumes are The Politics of Jesus by John Howard Yoder and Christian Anarchism, a political commentary on the gospel. Don't freak out. It's not that kind of anarchism. It's a long story we don't have time for. You can read it if you want. Also, uh, Jesus is Lord, Caesar is Not, edited by Scott McKnight, the the book from which this series is named. And then finally, I'd also recommend uh, The Naked Anabaptist by Stuart Murray. My personal political theology is thoroughly Anabaptist. The official position of Van City and its elders and leaders isn't necessarily uniformly Anabaptist to its core, but it has absolutely informed the broad perspective of our church and doctrine and theology. All right. Let's get to the text. Are you guys still okay? You still with me? Great, thank you. God, I hope so. We haven't really started yet. So you'll be fine. We'll be all right. Now we're starting in Romans 12, but really we're on our way to Romans 13. Romans 13 is often cited as the text on church and state, but more often than not, it's cited without Romans 12, which scholars believe and agree belongs to the same unit of thought and teaching. So let's read Romans 12 beginning in verse 9. Paul writes, Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love and honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Listen to this, verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud. Be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, remember, in the original text, there's no verse markers, there's no chapter breaks, so Paul's train of thought flows immediately into what we now know as chapter 13, verse 1. Keep reading. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's uh, servant for your good, but if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants. Agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. 
Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. Let no debt remain outstanding except for the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. Now skip down to verse 10 for the summation idea of this whole passage. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Romans 13 is perhaps chief among passages in the Bible stripped of context and then twisted in such a way that it is made to at least contradict, if not defy, the teachings of Jesus in the New Testament. And that's not, oh, Josh has a weird controversial interpretation. Romans 13 is constantly wielded in such a way that it crumbles with even a surface inspection. A popular interpretation of Romans 13 is this. Paul clearly teaches that all government is ordained by God, thus all government activity, from politics to military violence, is ordained by God to carry out the will of God. Thus, it logically follows in this line of thinking that it is good for Christians to participate in politics, government, military, and so on. Some would argue it is the obligation of the Christian to do so. Now, there's a long list of problems with this line of thinking. You don't want, I know you don't want to spend the evening with a contrarian, but before we establish the foundation for the next few weeks, we need to clarify a few things. And the misinterpretation of Romans 13 is a great place to do the groundwork, even if we have to be contrary for a couple of minutes. So bear with me. First, here's a fair question. Did Paul really mean to teach that all governments at all times are exactly as God intended them? That all governments exact the will of God? Now, Americans love to cite this text about America but why stop there? What about communist China under Mao or the Soviet Union under Stalin or Hitler's Third Reich? Or maybe more acutely for Paul's writing, what about Caesar Nero? We think that a few short years after Paul drafted this letter, Nero became the first great persecutor of Christians, feeding them alive to wild animals or burning them alive on nightly torches to light the emperor's garden after dark. Into this world, disciples of Jesus would have received and read Paul's letter. These Christians with people from their church and their own families burned alive or fed to lions, they would have read Romans 13 verse 1. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. There is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. What did they make of Paul's words? The Greek word that my Bible translates as established is tasso in Greek. It means to draw up an order or maybe a better translation is to arrange. Some theologians have used the analogy of a librarian to clarify the meaning of Tasso. Now, a librarian arranges books. The librarian did not write the books. The librarian may well have problems with the books, or they might even hate the books or find the books evil. But the librarian knows it's a certain kind of book. It goes in a certain place. Now, remember... Though there are people who do believe and teach that God is in control and that everything that happens, good or evil, is the outworking of God's plan, for centuries of church history, no one believed that. That to say, for several hundred years of the early church, no one reading Paul's letter understood God's providence as control. 
They didn't clutch their crying children in the Colosseums as hungry lions inched forward whispering, God's in control, everything happens for a reason. No, they understood evil and injustice as the will of man and the will of Satan, not the will of God. So the first glaring issue is that the evils of governments throughout history are not the will of God. Now, do me a favor and turn to the left in your Bibles to a book called 1 Samuel chapter 8 in the Old Testament. Feel free to consult the table of contents, 1 Samuel chapter 8. The thing about the librarian analogy is that, in our case, the metaphorical librarian doesn't even want there to be books at all. So look at 1 Samuel 8, beginning with verse 4. All the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, you're old and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. Verse 6. And when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord and the Lord told him, listen to all the people are saying to you. It's not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. And God gives Israel a warning. Look down at verse 10. Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, this is what the king who will reign over you will claim as his rights. He'll take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses, and they will run in front of his chariots. Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and others to plow his ground and reap his harvest and still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants, your male and female servants and the best of your cattle and donkeys. He will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his slaves. When that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us and to fight our battles. When Samuel heard all that the people said, he repeated it before the Lord. The Lord answered, listen to them, give them a king. Now in the story, God, God's people want a king. They want a human ruler. They want government. But God does not want that for his people. Instead, God wants to be their king. That Israel gets a king at all is a concession. God is willing to work with and through broken people and systems. That's another big issue with the superficial reading of Romans 13. In the Bible, God does not propose human government. Humans do. And as is the case throughout the scriptures, God gets his hands dirty to work with his people in their brokenness. So he doesn't tell them, fine, whatever, have a king, but I'm going to abandon you and I won't be here when it all falls apart. God graciously accommodates and collaborates. He gets his hands dirty in order to walk with us through messes of our own making. So God works with world government like a librarian, filing things, good or evil. Now, the next major issue with the surface reading of Romans 13 is Romans 12. In Romans 13:4, Paul claims rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They're God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Now, if disciples of Jesus are somehow involved in this process in any way, Paul is more than a little confusing. Just before this passage, Paul specifically commanded that this 
wielding the sword as agents of wrath, is exactly what disciples of Jesus are commanded not to do. In Romans 12, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it's mine to avenge. I will repay it. And he goes on, if your enemy is hungry, what you're supposed to do is feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. Do not overcome by evil. Overcome evil with good. In Paul's mind... God has always worked in and through broken systems as much as possible without overturning human freedom to maintain a semblance of order in a broken world. But the way he does that through the world government is very different, antithetical even, from the way he does that through disciples of Jesus. We reject the sword as Jesus commanded, and we embrace peace and enemy love. The state does not do that. It wields the sword. And yes, God is always at work to bring good out of evil, but disciples of Jesus, quote, overcome evil with good. Thus, Paul's shift in emphasis. Note the pronouns. As much as it depends on you, Christians in Rome, live at peace with everyone. If your enemy is hungry, feed them. Then in chapter 13, rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are agents of wrath. Paul is saying, look, The world works this way, but you, Christians, you are to embody something else entirely. The state uses the sword, exacts revenge, represents wrath to maintain some semblance of social order, and it demands taxes and obedience. The church, however, rejects the sword, leaves revenge to God, represents compassion and self-sacrificial love, and offers taxes and submission. Neither one can possibly do the other. It's not hard to see why. It's actually pretty simple. All world governments, good or bad, influence behavior via the threat of punishment. Some are more moral or less evil than others, but they all function this way. There are rules. Law and order is a term being thrown around currently. If you break the rules, you'll be punished by the sword. You'll be fined or imprisoned or executed or even all of these things. Every earthly government thinks they have the best vision for power structure. Every nation that goes to war thinks that they're the ones on the right side. But when you read the New Testament and you unpack Jesus' vision for how his followers will realize his way of life in the world, Jesus reverses the power structure. Rather than top-down power over other people, coercing behavior, threat of punishment, Jesus' kingdom functions via radical self-sacrificial love for others, including our enemies. These are things that the state, the empires and governments of the world, simply cannot do. World governments are never going to practice Jesus' teaching on nonviolence and enemy love, nor should we expect them to. The empires of the world are built on the foundational principle of power over, not radical self-sacrificial love that changes hearts. It's power over others to coerce behavior. The government does one thing, the church does something very, very different. Now, for hundreds of years of church history, the earliest followers of Jesus deliberately and uniformly withdrew from the world of politics. Apprentices of Jesus were largely Jewish, 
and were thus a persecuted minority used and, used and abused by the systems and institutions of power. They did not initiate violent revolt. They did not stew in their hatred of the oppressor. In fact, from this small persecuted rabble, we get writings like this one. I urge you then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good. Pleases God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Pray even for the oppressor. Writings like this one, circulated in times of oppression and persecution that boggle the mind. The world of Jesus and his earliest apprentices was a socio-political nightmare world ruled by bloodthirsty tyrants and pederasts who ruled with racism and injustice, oppressing the poor and marginalized and the foreigner. So why is there not a single recorded teaching from Jesus of Nazareth that encourages adjustments to the system that so victimized he and his people? Why does the New Testament not mobilize the early church to legislate their way of life and to take Israel back for God via the kingdom of government in the world? How foolishly unrealistic, how naive, how privileged they seem to the modern reader. Pray for those in power, bless and do not curse. And yet, and yet, the teachings of Jesus and practices of the early church somehow changed the ancient world forever. These naive and foolish early Christians bypassed the political system of power over others and chose instead to serve and sacrifice and do justice, and somehow it worked. The way of Jesus proliferated amongst dinner tables from one home to another, as did justice and reconciliation turning the ancient world upside down. And this unanimously understood distinction between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world lasted for centuries. In fact, it did not change until 312 AD when Emperor Constantine claimed to receive a vision from the Christian God that enabled him to emerge victorious from something called the Battle of Milvian Bridge. If Constantine did experience a vision that compelled him into the slaughter, I do not believe personally that it was from the Spirit of God, but from something else, something darker. The following year, Constantine legalized Christianity and the empire via, via the Edict of Milan, and for the first time, the church got in bed with the empire. Now, a veritable mountain of books and sermons have been devoted to the devastating effects of this moment in history, effects that linger to this day in our time and our place. But for hundreds of years, every disciple of Jesus believed the state did one thing and the church did another. So we have a problem. All of this raises an enormous amount of questions. How do Christians engage government? Is there a uniquely Christian approach to politics or a way to vote? Or how do Christians practice justice when the kingdom of the world practices injustice? How do you love your enemy when your enemy is a governor or a senator or a president? How do we follow Jesus well and be the people of God in a world so bloated with outrage and political infighting that it feels as if it might burst like some awful boil. I want to spend the next few weeks 
unpacking answers to those questions, not from Josh's opinions and certainly not to campaign in one partisan direction or another, but as always, to learn the teachings of Jesus, the inspired and authoritative writings of the scriptures, and then put them into practice in our time and place. And it all starts here, what the government does and what the church does, and how fundamentally different the two are. This is the foundation on which we will build. If you've been at Van City a while, I doubt if anything I say really surprises anyone anymore. Much of this will probably sound very familiar. But whether it's brand new information or old hat, again, we're asking you to remain gracious and humble and open-minded. This is a conversation about masters. In the Bible, the sin above and behind and at the heart of all sin is often depicted as idolatry, taking something that isn't God and letting it stand in God's place. American Christians, on the right and the left, have a political idolatry problem. We believe the state, the government, can do things that the Bible says it can't do. The right for example, often finds the teachings of Jesus on, say, nonviolence or enemy love hopelessly unrealistic. And so they allow the state to stand in the place of Jesus. Or on the left, for that matter, they often find the New Testament called to submit to and pray for political leaders, to find a third way to do justice and peace. They find it lazy or privileged. And so they allow politicians to stand in the place of Jesus. But we, if we are disciples of Jesus, then he is the king. His teachings are above all else, regardless of how unrealistic or privileged they sound to partisan ears. Jesus' teachings are authoritative whether they offend our political sensibilities or not. And my prayer is that Jesus the king will invite each of us to rediscover the subversive supremacy of his kingship and to experience in it the freedom that he promised. Jesus is Lord. Caesar is not. Let me pray and ask for God's spirit to guide us. Into this conversation. Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Vancity financially at vancity.church/give.